In preparation for my sermon this week, I came across an article in Christianity Today, quite a popular magazine, which made the claim that John 3.16, which we're going to be looking at this morning, is no longer the most famous verse of the Bible. It's been replaced with Jeremiah 29.11 as of 2019 based on internet searches and so on. And Jeremiah 29.11 says, for those of you who don't know, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I found this article because I was searching to find why John 3.16 had become the verse of the Bible. Why is this verse so, so popular? It's not always been that way, believe it or not. Believe it or not, before the 1970s, people didn't slap John 3.16 on bumper stickers all the time and do things like this, using it as an advertisement ploy. This was a cultural uh, trend that came along with advertising, where we're trying to advertise Jesus. John 3.16, slap it on everything, and it's just easy like that. But this article got me thinking. I have, two, or I have a theory why these two verses have become the favorites of our world. John 3.16 emerged from an era where the church was believing something called easy believism. People were, people were falling into easy believism. Easy believism says if you just say this prayer, you will secure, secure for yourself eternal life. Just say the prayer and you're good forever. Don't worry about anything else. Now contrast this with the biblical understanding of the lordship of Jesus Christ over your entire life. Everything. So the gift that God gives you in John 3.16 becomes eternal life. Now that might sound right to you, right? The gift becomes eternal life. But is that what the text says in John 3.16? What is the gift of John 3.16? The gift is the giving of the Son. Jesus is uh, the eternal life that we get. But the eternal life is a byproduct of what we get in Christ. In a very subtle but very practical way, they separated the gift of salvation from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So is it any wonder why this new favorite verse, Jeremiah 29.11, is a favorite of ours? A verse badly taken out of context. Remember, God is telling the prophet Jeremiah something specifically about him. And we've taken this scripture and we, out of context to tell people that God wants to give you good things, irrespective of how you're living your life or what you're actually doing. You just get the good stuff if you follow Jesus. This verse represents the era of the health wealth, and prosperity gospel. You've probably heard this before. So a shift from easy believism to now you just get whatever you want. Just get nice things out of the gospel. Now I say all this because we must see the gift that God gives in John 3.16 as Christ himself. Jesus is the gift of the gospel. And if we try to separate salvation from the person and work of Christ, we will completely miss the heart of God. What he's trying to do for us, his purposes. When we receive Christ, we receive the love of God extended towards us, and it is the light of the world. We receive Christ as the light, not eternal life as the light. And when we receive the light, that means we must hate the darkness, right? That's by necessary consequence. We hate the darkness if we love the light, as we will soon see in our text. So the text this morning is that famous text, John 3.16, verses 16 through 21. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. Church, John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be, or that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to such a famous passage of the Bible. We pray that you would breathe a new, fresh life on us. Lord, let us not get stagnant in what we already think about the gospel. But Lord, I pray that this word would be as it is to us, living and active. That it would pierce even to the dividing of our soul and spirit. That it would bring conviction to our hearts to be able to turn away from our sin and turn towards you, to love the light. So, Lord, we pray that as we look at your words this morning, that we would see past the words and see your son, Jesus. There's a tendency, Lord, for us to think that in the scriptures that we can find eternal life. This was the sin of the Pharisees. We thought that we could find eternal life in the scriptures, but it is they that bear witness to you. Let us see your son, Jesus, this morning, Father. We pray that everything that I say would be honoring to your word. Lord, if it isn't, I pray that it would go in one ear and right out the other. I pray that I would repent of anything that I say that is contrary to your word. So Lord, I pray that you'd guide my words, be upon us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint each and every one of us this morning to hear from you clearly. We pray these things in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Amen. So it's, it's crucial that we keep in mind that this section is growing out of what we talked about last week. If you didn't catch last week's sermon, that was part one of the new birth. I would highly recommend that you go and listen to that sermon. And this sermon will make a little bit more sense because this sermon is growing out of that. That's why it begins with four. John is shifting now from talking about Nicodemus and Jesus and that discourse about the new birth. And then John gives his commentary, what he believes is the meaning of the new birth. That's why he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and so on. So this is growing out of Jesus' insistence that you must be born again. And also, as we looked last week, Jesus says you must be born again. But it also seems that he's saying that you can't really do this. This is something that that God does in you by the Spirit. You can no more birth yourself spiritually than you can physically that we can't harness it any more than we can harness the wind he says the wind blows where it where it wishes and no one knows where it comes from or no one knows where it goes so it is with the spirit so this is where it's growing out of which perfectly frames the kind of love that john is going to talk about in john 3 16 as we'll look at in a second so if you're taking notes, I know that we do have a couple note takers to hear uh, here today. I have five movements that we'll kind of move along in. And number one is God's actions. Number two, God's purposes. Number three, man's actions. Number four, man's purposes. And number five, I'll give an explanation of how those two work together. So if you want me to go over those again, number one is God's actions, two, God's purposes, three, man's actions, four, man's purposes, and number five, an explanation of how these two come together. So let's first look at, look at God's actions in this text this morning. What is God doing here? Well, he is doing two things. He's loving. It says he loved the world, and he gave. 
God loved and he gave. And if you miss the love of God here, you will miss everything that I say past this point. You must see that this is framed in love and there's a specific kind of love that God is framing it in. This is, remember, coming out of the new birth, the thing that we can't do. So this love is an unconditional love. You can't prepare yourself to be loved by God. God loves us and we uh, love because he first loved us. So everything that we do is a response to God's love. There isn't any prompt which moved God to act on your behalf. He just did it. Your works didn't move God. Your faith didn't even move God. God is the first mover here. And this is why we started with God's actions and then we'll move to man's actions. God speaks, we respond. This is the way our liturgy works. God calls us. He says, I've done something for you. I've loved you. Therefore, what are you going to do? It's a call to response. And the, the so loved here shows the extent of God's love. It's not just that he is loving. It says he so loved the world. This is a, a radical love. It's a, a big step that God is doing in loving the world. It's a stretch of love. You might think of it like that. Why? Because of the object of the love. What is God loving? He's loving the world. Is the world easy to love? Are you easy to love? I'm not easy to love. I know how I am, and you know the things that you deal with. And this is the world that he's talking about, the world that God loves. And most of the time, if you look in Scripture, the world is opposed to God. The world hates God. And yet, here John tells us that God so loved the thing that hated him that he gave his son for him. It doesn't even make any sense. Why would he do this? Why would God do something kind for someone that hated him so much? This is an astonishing love, church. I think this is the reason why John 3.16 actually did become an amazing verse that we did start to kind of commercialize. Because it's such big news. It's the biggest advertisement of all time. So it's, it's, it's not in God's nature to love sin and evil. And yet, his good creatures, remember we confessed that we were, we, we were made good, but we fell from goodness. So his good creator, uh, creations became identified with sin, the thing that he hates. So when Adam fell, he fell from a state of goodness because he loved the darkness, that unknown. He wanted to take uh, things into his own hands. God said, don't do this. And he says, mm, but what if I did that instead? What if I stepped into that unknown? Let me figure out what might be the outcome. This is what Adam did. Therefore, he entered a state of death and perishing. It might not seem like that big of a deal, but God said it and he meant it. And when uh, Adam fell, his nature was corrupted. And because we all are descendants of Adam, your nature has been corrupted. We are born with sin, dead on arrival. That's the way that we come into the world. In sin, my mother conceived me, is what David says, the psalmist says. So we are all in this same state. This is in contrast to eternal life. We aren't born with eternal life. After the fall, eternal death was the verdict. That's your verdict when you come into this world. Man only had perishing to look forward to in this state of sin. But God, being rich in mercy, so loved his creation that he was unwilling to let that good thing spiral into a bad thing. He says, no, 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 I love this. I made this. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to fix this. The thing that spiraled into the thing that he hated, he said, I'm not going to let that happen. So how could God, who is love, he is the essence of love. He says, I am love, act towards a people that identified with the complete opposite of who he is. Sin, evil, hatred towards him. How could these two things be brought together? Well, there was a running away from God, and they're running this way. Does God run that way? What does God do? There had to, something had to give. 
That means that sacrifice had to happen. Something is going to have to sacrifice. One of these is going to have to make up for that room in the middle. Right? There has to be something that bridges the gap. And sacrifice was the only way. A good God cannot love sin and evil. Right? Something had to get. He couldn't just say, okay, it's fine, guys. Don't worry about it. We'll just come over here and we'll get back together. Something had to give. And that was himself. He was what had to give. He was the sacrifice that was going to bridge these two things together. And how did he do that? How did God give? Did he give a present? Did he give something nice? Did he say a nice word? He gave something so, so much more than that. God the Father gave his only son. You've heard this a hundred, maybe a million times. But I want you to think about that this morning. God gave his son because he loved you. Let that sink in. I, I want to let it sink in for myself and just think about what that means. Fathers, think about your boys. Some of you maybe have an only son. I have an only son. I have a Henry. I can't imagine giving up Henry. Mothers, think about your babies. Giving that up as a sacrifice because you love something else so much more. Maybe I shouldn't say more. God didn't love the world more than he loved the son, but he gave him up because he loved both. He had a really, really deep love. And I want to to let that sink in. John 3.16, we say it all the time, but we don't actually let it process what it actually means. The implications there are massive. And my mind starts to kind of melt when I go there. Giving up your son, it almost, it kind of strikes you in the wrong way at first, doesn't it? Child sacrifice, that's disgusting. It, it's, it's gross if you think about it. God says all through the Old Testament, don't be like the foreign nations. Don't sacrifice your kids. Don't kill them. That's a gross thing. Don't go there. Don't do that. And then God sends his son to give his life up. Now, is God being a hypocrite here? I want you to think about this. This is a little bit of tension. This is what the world will say when they hear this. Is God sacrificing his own son? Who killed Jesus? We did. God didn't kill his own son. God would never kill his own son, just like you would never kill your own sons. It's an abomination. Child sacrifice is an abomination. God would not do that. God forbid. The world accuses us of saying that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says that man is the one that killed Christ. You are the man. I am the man. We are the ones that sacrificed the son. We killed him. It was our sin that hung him there, is the way that beautiful hymn puts it. He is there because of what you have done. Because you hated God, you put him there. And because he loved you, he allowed it to happen. Isn't that... It's mind-blowing. It's not even strange. That's not even the right word for it. It is crazy. The chief act of God's love towards humanity was to give his only son so that you might kill him purposefully in hate. That you saw the darkness and you said, I don't care about the light. I want to sin. And it was that sin that Jesus died for. And then after the resurrection, his plan was for us to be blown away that the very greatest evil, sacrificing the Son of God, actually became the sacrifice that we needed most in that moment. The sin was actually paid for by killing him. Isn't it crazy? That reconciliation, how that gospel truth happened. And this is why we said last week that looking at the cross for what it is, is the only, but it's the best sign that God could give us to show us how we might be saved. There's nothing else that you can say that fits the bill better than saying, look at the cross. 
Just like Moses had the, the serpent on the rod and everyone looked at it and they would be saved. It's that easy, but it's also very difficult if you think about it. Because you have to confront the reality that you are in sin and you're going to die and you need help. But that's the best news you can get. That is the sign, the chief sign that God gives his people of his love towards them. Now, in that sign, we see his purposes. Let's read in verse 16 what the purposes of God are. It says in verse 16b, let's, uh, uh, let's start at the second part, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his love or send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what are the purposes of God? The purposes of God are eternal life, not to condemn, not to judge, but to save. That's what God's purpose of sending Jesus into the world is to do. So the purpose of God is life, salvation, and through the easiest means possible. Simply believe. Now it's not easy believism, but you can have it as easy as that. Putting your gaze, your trust, your faith in God, and you will have eternal life because you see the Son for what He is. Lifted up on the cross, just as we, we talked about last week, that serpent signified something, that God, or that Jesus was identifying with the thing that bit the people, the sin. The word is, is that He who knew no sin became sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That exchange happens when we look at the cross, trust in him and belief and faith. We looked in, there's an exchange that happens there. We become his righteousness that he just gave up. And he becomes our sin that we put him there with. That is the gospel church. And the offer is to, to whoever will believe. Whoever. That's, there's, there's that perfect opportunity. To, when you preach the gospel, it is to whoever would believe. And this could be anyone. It could be the, the worst sinner that you can think of. The nastiest person, the thing that you or the person that you would say, that person will never get saved. That person needs the gospel more than anyone. That's why we preach the gospel indiscriminately. We don't get to pick who we think is a good prospect for the gospel, who it'll take root in. We don't get to say that soil looks really, really tilled, really, really cultivated, really, really ready to go, and we'll preach it to them. No, we we don't know. Because God is the one that tills the soil of the heart. You don't do that. That's not your job. That's the Spirit's job. He does that work and we just sow the seed. We throw it out, and it might land on hard soil, or it might land on some really, really fresh soil that God's been working in his heart and no one else in the world knows about. So it's to whoever will believe, that's the gift of eternal life. Now it says that he came not to condemn, or we might say judge. Some of the translations say not to judge the world, not to condemn the world. What's going on here? Well, have you noticed how when we preach this gospel message, there are some who completely miss it? Kind of the, the, the hard soil that we just talked about. They miss the whole point, which is God's love. For some reason, you preach the gospel to them, and all they hear is judgment. Have you seen these people before? They, they just hear hatred somehow from God. And when they, uh, they, they see judgment, and that's all that they see, their sin is being exposed. There's something happening there. They are too self-righteous and prideful to see that their sin condemns them already. They're in a state of judgment already. So when you tell someone that they need a Savior and they say, Are you judging me? Is God judging me? They're showing themselves that they are blinded by the light and unwilling to look at the very thing that they need the most, which is a sacrifice for their sin, for that pride, for the hardness of heart. They need the gospel very badly, and yet they say, I don't want it. I love the darkness. I hate the light. I don't want it. But John makes the point to say that this, uh, this judgment upon sin is not the point, though. That's actually not the point. The, the salvation from sin is the point. 
They're just missing the point. And the people that understand it are seeing that, oh, they actually understand the purposes of God. They're understanding what God is doing in the world, which is to save the world. That's why he came into the world, to save the world. Judgment is a necessary consequence to salvation from sin. Think about it this way. Uh, Heinrich Julius Holtzman, uh, a German Protestant theologian, hard name to say. Uh, he's from the 19th century. He says this. He says, Christ comes to judge the world as little as the sun comes to cast a shadow. Think about that. Christ comes to judge the world as little as the sun comes to cast a shadow. When the sun shines and something stands in front of that beam, that's not the sun's fault. right? It's just beaming light. It's showing the truth. It's showing reality for what it is. And if someone blocks that light and a, a shadow is cast, that is that person's problem, not the sun's problem. This would be like approaching a drowning man. right? You, you've heard the analogies before. A drowning man's out in the water, and you, you run up to the dock, and you say, Hey, I'm here to save you. And that person says, Are you saying I'm damned? Right? Well, the answer is technically yes. I am saying you're damned, but that's not why I'm here. That's not the point. I'm here to save you. I didn't push you in the water. You got there on your own. I'm just here to save you. But so many people act like that when you come to them with the gospel. Hey, I'm here to tell you some good news about Jesus. Are you saying I'm damned? Technically, yes. Yes, you are. But that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to talk about how you're damned. I'm here to talk about how you can be saved in Jesus Christ. When you trust the gospel, you don't have to be drowning. You don't have to live a miserable life. You can have a life of meaning. Spurgeon said it this way, The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Have you heard that before? The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. In other words, there's different kinds of hearts out there, different natures. You need a new nature before your heart can be different. And a heart of stone is only going to get harder when the sun and the good news shines on it. But a, a soft heart, a waxy heart, a heart of flesh, a new heart will melt when it hears the gospel. That's what we want. When we hear the gospel, we want it to melt us. Make us realize, oh my goodness, I don't deserve this. When you hear the gospel, it should give you goosebumps every time because of how good news it is. It should never get old. John 3.16 shouldn't harden you. It should soften you. So there's God's actions, God's purposes. What about man's actions? What about our responsibility? We talk about this word a lot, the responsibility of man. Where does man's will play into this? Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this. Whoever believes in him, that's us, the people, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now last week we left off with a bit of, of a predicament with the new birth. If we read Jesus correctly, he's saying that we must be born again, but we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it. So what, what must we do? Where does man's responsibility fit into all this? And there's one simple answer. It's, it's complicated if we try to think it out, but it's the simple answer that Jesus gives, and that's belief. All you're, all you're called to do is believe. You're not called to figure out how you believe. You're not called to do anything but believe what God says. He says it, and are you going to believe it or not? Think about the word responsibility. It is responding to something. It's man's duty to respond to the actions and purposes of God. God lays it out there, and he says, what are you going to do with it? Choose this day whom you'll serve. What are you going to do? So man doesn't first act, and then God responds. God acts, and we respond. We need to get that order right. right? We don't twist God's arm and make him do things. We can't make him save us. It's none of that. God does something for us, and we are called to respond to it. And the result will either be our salvation or our damnation. 
That's the reality of Scripture. There's only two options. There's not a little in-between area where you're kind of straddling both sides. You don't get to do that. It's one way or the other. Those who look at the Son of Man who's been lifted up will not be condemned. Right? There will be eternal life. That's what it says. Do you believe it or not? But what about those who do not believe? That's kind of where our mind goes to a lot, though, doesn't it? What about those who don't believe? Now, can I just point something out? Everyone really, really wants to overemphasize that whoever in John 3.16, whoever, whoever believes. But they don't emphasize the whoever in John 3.18, right? The one that says that whoever does not believe, whoever is condemned already, right? It's a hard word to swallow, Right? We, we like the first one. We don't like the second one. But they're, they're just two sides of the same coin is what it is. We just don't like to talk about the other side of it. If we ignore John 3.18, then we're not going to fully understand John 3.16. John says that whoever does not believe is condemned already. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they are not born again. The same state that all of you were born in. None of us were born again when we were born the first time. That might sound a little bit confusing, but that's the reality of the situation. We must have a new birth, another birth, a rebirth. We have to be born again. We're all born dead in our sins and trespasses is what the scripture says. It says in Ephesians 2, just listen to this. Let it wash over you and come to the realization of what we were born into. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of the world. That's the way we used to act. Following the power, or the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And catch this. And were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that everyone is by nature a child of wrath when they come to this world. The rest of mankind, we're all like that when we're born. We need a new nature before we can believe, otherwise we're condemned already. That's what he's saying here in this text. Like Adam, we are sons of the perishable seed. We need an imperishable seed. We talked about that last week. Born of the water and the spirit. Born again. We must be born again because we act according to our nature. You're going to do the things that you are, right? You've heard this, you are what you eat. That's partially true, but really, you eat what you are, right? You're going to want and you're going to desire the things that you are. Your nature uh, controls your desires. You're going to have a desire for sin when you come to this world, which brings us to God's judgment of the situation. What does God say about this? Verse 19 says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were Evil. In other words, the actions and the purposes of man, what does man do? What is his purpose? Well, he does what he wants. He does what he wants, and he loves the darkness. And that's God's judgment. He says, this is the judgment. Now, someone's going to say, I thought Jesus says he didn't come to judge the world. He didn't, but it's a necessary consequence of his, him coming to save the world. The reality is, is that if you hate it, that's the judgment. Right? That's, that's the reality of the situation. He came to save, and if you hate that, that's the judgment upon you. You say, I don't want it. And he says, okay, you can have it. If you want to be damned, you, you can have that if that's truly what you want. Now, if you, if you flip a coin and it lands on heads, then it necessarily is not tails. Right? That's not too complicated, but that's the kind of how it is with salvation. There's two sides of the same coin. If you are saved, then you are, by necessary consequence, not condemned, and vice versa. Right? You are one or the other. So, the light has come into the world, it says. 
And this light is like a catalyst. You've heard this word about like a catalyst before. What it does, it, it causes a chemical reaction. It causes something to happen. It, something always happens when the catalyst comes into the situation. And because the light has come into the world, it necessarily has consequence and this, consequences. And this is a good thing. His coming gives whoever the opportunity of salvation and challenges them to a decision. What are you going to do? To refuse his good gift is to be judged. Will you believe or will you not believe? That's really the only question. Are you going to believe the light that's come into the world? Now, we like to think about the light uh, being something that just comes in a new believer's life. The light comes in, they see Jesus. Are you going to believe or not? Yes or no? No, it's, it's more deep than that, I think. I think that the light confronts you each and every day. When you wake up in the morning, in the light of the gospel, how are you going to respond? Are you going to follow the light? Are you going to follow the darkness? Are you going to live out righteous deeds? Are you going to follow Satan? Right? That's just the reality of it. We don't like to put it that way because it just sounds really awful when you say, are you going to follow Satan? Well, of course I'm not going to follow Satan. But the reality is you followed Satan this week because you just confessed it earlier. Right? You, you did. You, you let Satan whisper a lie into your ear and you, you went with it. You lived it out. So we have to let that light shine in our lives and allow it to speak to us and to our inner heart, not just the new, uh, the new convert. Like you get saved and everything's fine from then on out. No, it's not that easy. That's the, the part of easy believism that isn't true. right? You have to confront the light each and every day because Jesus is still alive. He's still speaking to you. He's still active, and his word is active too, and that's the way that he speaks. So he works like a catalyst. And when Jesus comes, he makes these dividing statements absolutely clear to his people. You must be born again. Only those who are born again will come to the kingdom of God. If not, you will not see it, he says. He makes dividing statements all the time to press you to believe and to choose. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Right? He says that there's, there's both. My sheep hear my voice, though, and they'll do what I tell them. They come to me. My sheep will come to me. The goats, they're not going to come. What are you? Jesus explains a parable saying the field is the world. Remember, we're talking about he loves the world. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. We like to tell ourselves that everyone that's born in this world is a child of God. Not true. Parents know this, right? You, you look at them and the, they're born at first and you're like, oh, they're so cute. And then you take them home and you're like, oh, right, uh, the Bible is true. Total depravity is totally a thing. So we, you, the babies, they keep you up all night. They are sons of disobedience, and you preach the gospel to them all the time. That, that's true, though, isn't it? They need a Savior. You need a Savior. That's, it's not natural. It's natural to actually do the opposite and to run from God. This is why you see it all through Scripture. John says in 844, uh, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, and he speaks from his own nature. That word nature again. We need a new nature. It says, when he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and therefore the father of lies. Now, does this not sound exactly what Jesus is talking about here when it says that those people love the darkness? They're acting like their father, Satan. Again, it sounds awful. The, 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 the world hates this message. They cannot stand it. But it's because they hate the, the, the light. It's because they're being exposed. When you say you're acting like the father or devil, they say, oh, because that's, they're, they're like Satan. That's, that's how he acts. So the people love the darkness because their works were evil. In other words, birthed into wrongdoing, they had no wish to be disturbed. Don't touch me. I don't need help. Right? 
They refuse to be shaken out of their comfortable sinfulness, and they want to just stay there. They're cozy there. Sin is cozy when you are a son of disobedience. Disobedience is comfortable to you. But, he says, why were, they, why were their works evil? Because they act according to their nature. They need new hearts. And let me ask you, church, do you love the darkness? Sometimes we do. We shouldn't, but sometimes we do. And this is why the gospel confronts us here and now. That John 16 isn't just relevant to the non-converted. It's very relevant to you. Do you love the darkness or do you love the light? That's the thing that you have to choose in that moment of sin. When you're in that moment of temptation, when uh, the, the serpent is there whispering in your ear saying, I think you could get around this. God doesn't really mean that. Um, it, just twist it a little bit and you'll be fine. Eternal damnation is the result. right? That's all it took. Did you think that Adam and Eve really thought it was that big of a deal just to eat a, a fruit? They're thinking, is this really? I mean, we got all these fruits here. Why not just this one too? I mean, is it that big? It is that big of a deal. Because God said no. Disobedience is a huge sin. And we need to take that seriously. So their nature is fixed because they are fixed on perishable seed. They look to Adam as the only son of God. You've you've heard this before a lot, but I don't know if it, it always registers. There's only two people in Scripture that are referred to as the son of God. They're sons of God, but there's only two people in Scripture that are referred to as the son of God. And that's Adam and Christ. And there's only one true son of God. These two sons of God are representative of two kinds of people. The first is the old creation. That's the old man. That's Adam. And the second is the new creation, the new man. The first is the father of death, Scripture says. The second is the father of life. But in Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. There's really only two ways of living. You're going to be one of these two types of people. Now, some good thinker in here is probably saying, wait a second. Now, I'm, I'm processing all this. I'm tracking with you. But if we only act according to our nature, and our nature is sinful, then we can't help it. We can't believe. It's impossible. And to that I say, in many ways, yes. Yes, that's the problem, is that we can't save ourselves. You have to have a really, really big understanding of sin. It is a huge problem. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it says in Scripture. For it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We confess that. Look at it, look at it in your liturgy. We, you just said it with your own mouth. You can't do what God wants you to do. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't do it. If you don't hear and feel the utter desperation of humanity here, you will not fully grasp God's plan of salvation and how big it is. Your view of sin is directly related to your view of grace. A small view of sin results in a small view of grace. A big view of sin and recognizing sin for what it really is results in a big view of grace. You recognize, oh my goodness, I couldn't have done anything. I couldn't have saved myself. My nature was corrupt. I was dead. I wasn't even born. I I wasn't born again. I needed something radically to happen inside of me. So there's good news, church, though. We're not left in sin. God didn't leave us there. He acted he, he acted and he showed us his purposes. Paul says in that same text in Romans 8, You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what is the hope of humanity? It's the new birth. 
It's to be born again, being born of the Spirit. Now, how do these two things come together? Right? We got God over here, God's actions, God's purposes, and then you got over here man's actions and man's purposes. How do we explain these two coming together? Let me read in verse 20 through 21. It says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So his works, lest his works be exposed, it says. Why don't they want their works to be exposed? Why don't they want people to see it? Well, because they're people of the lie. That's who they are. They still believe what Adam originally did, that God didn't know best by telling them how to live their lives. They took life into their own hands and they believed the serpent rather than God. Do you do this? Right? Let the gospel confront you today. See Christ push, pushing you to a decision. What are you going to do? And this is our problem, church. We often want the benefits of God, but not God himself. Right? Back to our original problem. We want the eternal life, but not on the terms of the one giving it. Right? We want what Jesus has to offer, but not what Jesus says to do. We want to believe that God has a good plan for our life, plans for welfare and hope like Jeremiah 29.11, but we don't want to live in accordance with the light too. Right? Hurts, doesn't it? That's, that's how we often think, though. We want the benefits and we want the gifts, but we don't want the gift giver. But the Word says you can't have your cake and eat it, too. If you truly believe, if you're truly born, you're going to do what's true, it says. You're going to follow the light. You're going to do what's right. And if you come to the light, that necessarily means laying aside your sins. You're going to repent. You're going to confess your sins. You're going to come in here each and every week and say, I blew it again. I didn't do it. I need, I need a Savior. I need to be saved is what I need. I don't need to just try harder. I need to be saved from my sins. That's what it means to come to the light. And it says, whoever d- does what is true comes to the light. Why? So that your works may be seen. We might say even exposed. Why would we want that though? Why would we want our works to be seen? It says that the world may see that they have been carried out in God. Let me rephrase that. That the world may be see that they are born of God. That God has birthed something amazing in us. He's changed us. And when the world sees that, who do they glorify? If you're not the one that birthed it, who are they glorifying? They're glorifying God. So even our works are a gospel message to the world as we live in the world, as we turn away from sin and repentance and turn towards God in faith. That is a gospel message in and of itself, that you've been changed. You've been born again. So church, as we close, I want to draw your attention once again to the point of this whole message, which is this. Love. God loves the world. If you miss that, you miss the whole thing. You don't understand it. God loves the world. We looked at God's actions and his purposes, and then we looked at man's actions and his purposes, and we explained that unless our actions and our purposes are brought into subjection to the light, they come together, if they're reconciled, unless they do that, they will be condemned, and in fact, they're condemned already. We are born alienated from God, enemies of God. And in Christ, we've been brought near. We need Jesus to bring this about. But the gospel, the good news is, is that Jesus has done this. He's, God's already acted in Christ. He's loved the world. He's given his son. And his son has went to the cross and died. And when he was there, he says, it's finished. It's all done. The work is done. You don't have to strive to get all the work and accomplish all these good deeds and merit your salvation. You can receive it as a gift. Right? And it's that image of Christ on the cross that Jesus chooses to point to Nicodemus and say, it's that easy, Nicodemus. It's, it's just like looking upon it there. You can't work hard. You're a Pharisee. You've been doing it your whole life. You think you've really heaped up a lot. But the reality is, is you can't do it. 
You never could do it. All you need to do is receive it. You need to receive the righteousness that is not a righteousness of your own, a righteousness of the law. We need a righteousness that is of faith, the word of truth. Now, this is easy, but it's not easy believism, is it? Right? It's, it's easy to receive it, but it's not so easy to live it out. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's the truth. So John's whole point here is to press you to the decision. The question really isn't, have you been born again? That's actually not the question. All right, we've been talking about the new birth all this time. The question isn't necessarily, have you been born again? But it is, do you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Do you believe that? Because the answer to that question is actually the answer to the first question. Because if you believe it, you've been born again. You have new life given to you. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10. We'll close. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's to bring Christ down. Or do not say, who will descend into the abyss? That's to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For what the heart one believes and is justified and what the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's that simple. You, you look upon Christ, you trust, and you believe, and you walk out saying, I've been saved. I've been forgiven. It's done. It's finished. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in light of your cross, we're humbled this morning to realize that this isn't just an intellectual endeavor. It's a, it's a heart endeavor. This is about love. Father, we pray that 